Welcome to another episode of Inside RE Rosenberg Anesthesis Podcast. My name is Zachary Rothkin. I'm a partner at the firm and head of the firm's administrative law department. With us today, very exciting guest, Jay Martin, the executive director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program. It is a great pleasure to have Jay Martin with me on this episode, someone who I've been looking forward to, to a very long time to, to be able to have this discussion. Jay, welcome to the episode. Thank you, Zachary. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. So I'm going to give a little intro about Jay. Um, I'm sure anyone listening here is already familiar, but um, that's I'm going to give the intro anyway. So Jay Martin is the executive director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program. Jay is an expert in rent-stabilized rent housing policy, representing more than 4,000 CHIP members who provide nearly 400,000 units of rent-stabilized housing in New York City. Jay is the voice for hardworking property owners who have built strong communities throughout New York City. He's a leading advocate for finding compromise on housing solutions, rejecting traditional narratives that pit tenants against property owners. Prior to joining CHIP, Jay was the chief of staff to New York State Senator David Carlucci from my neck of the woods up in Rockland County and the director of operations for the Senate Independent Democratic Conference, the IDC. City and state named Jay a 40 under 40 rising star in 2017 and has continually named him one of the most powerful members of the New York real estate industry since 2019. Again, Jay, welcome to the episode. Thank you. Appreciate it, Zachary. So, Jay, tell us a little bit about your career and how you ended up in your current role as the executive director of CHIP. Well, uh, so I've been, I were, had worked in and around the state legislature going back to 2007. My first job was Senator Jeff Klein. I was his driver uh, and I did his scheduling, um, which I would recommend anyone who wants to learn about how politics <laughs> really works uh, to, to be a body person, for lack of a better term, was which I was traveling with the senator pretty much all the time, 24 hours, um, and being at his disposal. It was a, it was a very eye-opening experience in how government really works. Um, and I worked my way up through the legislature uh, to my final position with uh, David Carlucci as chief of staff. Um, but, you know, my experience with housing goes back to, I, I was raised by a single mother um, and we were evicted once. Uh, we're from, I was from Philadelphia, uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, and we had an interaction with a, uh, an old Italian woman who, was, who owned the property we were living in. Uh, and my mother and I were struggling at the time. And she, she used to cook for us. We had a very cordial relationship. But it came to the point where we could no longer pay our rent. And she got to the point where we had to leave. Um, luckily, we had friends to stay with for some time before we moved in with some family. But that experience has always kind of informed my perspective on housing. Um, and it's always kind of fascinated me how government could do more to kind of help the middle process between a property owner supplying the housing and when renters fall into trouble. Um, and it's informed kind of my perspective on my position here at CHIP. Um, and I bring kind of that background, I think, to how I look at uh, how we can solve a lot of the problems, both in the rent stabilized community and housing in general. Okay, um, you know cer certainly your experience clearly play uh, you know a very important role in how you've gotten here and, and what it is that you do. So now now that we know how you got there, why don't you tell us what Chip is and what exactly you do in your role as executive director of Chip? Yeah, so um, I think I put out a lot of fires, or I try to anyway, and, and it seems like more and more on a daily basis for our industry, unfortunately. Um, and uh, pretty much since the moment I started in 2019, I started uh, 
three months before. That was a quiet uh, year in housing, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I started three months before HSCPA passed. Uh, so, and I was during my lobby ban period, which was extremely frustrating uh, during your during that period, which there's a two year period when you leave the legislature, you can't actually directly speak to any of the people you used to work with. And that was the, the legislature. Age, right in the smack in the middle of that. Right, right, right. So um, I, I uh, really appreciated Chip taking a uh, taking me on and, and wanting me to help, but it was very uh, frustrating with my hands tied behind my back going through that experience. Uh, but it was also informative, I think, to, to see where the industry was from that perspective. Um, and it's helped me kind of prepare, I guess, for our, our existing battles that we keep happening, keep happening and, and where the industry as a whole is uh, politically speaking and legislatively with uh, the lawmakers in Albany. And, you know, I think there are in our position, you know, as primarily rent stabilized. So you know, backing up with what CHIP is, we're 4,000 property owners. Um, 400,000 units of rent stabilized housing, 90% uh, of our units are rent stabilized. So um, that that those economics are strongly influenced by things like the rent guidelines board vote last night. Those, those owners are primarily uh, reliant on those increases to fund their buildings. Um, and when Albany and city council of New York make drastic changes to the rent laws, those have real world impacts on the financial well-beings of those buildings, um, as I don't have to tell you or many of the listeners. So um, it is a constant uh, give and take in my position, I think, is to uh, educate lawmakers. Uh, there's a presumption, I think, from our industry's perspective, and I think the general public is that the lawmakers know um, how housing works, how the economics of housing works by and large. Um, they are dealing with a thousand issues a day. And our job, I think, is to cut through those a thousand issues and to educate them on the real world impacts of the, the bills that they're proposing. And sometimes we're successful um, and sometimes we're not. And, and we've been, I think, as an industry as a whole, been struggling because of this recent political shift, uh, both in New York uh, nationally, but also in New York specifically. Um, and my job, I think, is to help with you and others in the industry help turn that tide a little bit. And I think there's promising signs that we are getting there, but it will remain uh, difficult for some time. Okay. Uh, Jay, I'd like to turn to a term that's been floating around in Albany for, I think, close to a century now, um, which is kind of, you know, kind of ironic, but uh, sad at the same time. Um, is, is there still a housing emergency or a housing crisis in New York? I mean, it's been on the books since, I think, World War II. Uh, is there really some sort of housing crisis? And if there is, what is it? So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I say there is, and I would believe, I believe there is, but, but it's very important to understand that it is caused by the law that is there to fix it. So, um, and that is a clear difference. So, you know, we get into these conversations about what a housing emergency is and where the affordable housing is in New York and why it's an emergency. Um, the HSTPA is predicated every four years. It was every four years. Now it's in perpetuity since 2019 that um, a any vacancy rate of, uh, above 5% was not a housing emergency. Below 5%, then uh, it was a housing emergency. And so New York for decades has had less than a 5% vacancy rate. 
um, in middle income and working class housing. And that is rent stabilized housing by and large. And in, in 2019, they basically decided that forever, um, as long as that, uh, that amount of below 5% was maintained, then they could keep declaring a housing emergency forever. Now, what I said before was the law itself actually disincentivized the creation of, of middle income and working class housing because it's no longer profitable. As we know, representing rent stabilized property owners, there is no upside margins to creating housing with property tax increases, uh, insurance increases, utility cost increases. Um, the cost uh, economics are such that the only real profit is developing luxury condos or luxury high-class developments. So the economics are more and more uh, development money that is created, and even then is now we're looking at with the uh, extension of, or the lack of extension of the 421A tax credit. Now we're not even seeing that being created. So there is a housing shortage, it's clear. Um, there, are, there are many more renters than there are available housing units. But the issue is that the law that exists to control the cost of rent that has existed in perpetuity since the 40s in some form, but more very specifically since 69, is that uh, the reduction of the production of that housing has contributed to it. In fact, the main argument of our lawsuit at the Supreme Court level, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later in the conversation, is that the rent stabilization system is a self-fulfilling prophecy and that it diminishes the supply of housing. Okay. Now, so what can the real estate industry do to solve this housing crisis or make it easier for property owners or even control this narrative better? Because like you said, there were political changes. We see that the Democratic Party who are making all these laws seem to be controlled by the socialists, democratic socialists, socialists, and the progressives, um, but clearly those who um, have a very different outlook on basic economics and basic reality. So what can be done to solve these issues and just better control this narrative? Yeah, so um, uh, in, in my experience, and it's taken me a while to get here, it's to understand that there are you know, human beings are, uh, there's a famous line from the Muppets movie, and it's like, people are people. And, uh, it's, it, and what that means is, frankly, at the end of the day, everyone's motivated by something. So elected officials are motivated by self-preservation. And if we can align our issues with ways that they can still preserve themselves, which is to keep being reelected in this case, they want to continue to keep their jobs which is their fear uh, when they vote for things um, uh, or they, the perception is that they're voting for things that tenants wouldn't like um, because they have a very loud and vocal minority, I would argue, in the tenant advocate community constantly screaming at them. Um, I think if we can uh, show them that they can take logical, rational, business-centered decisions without actually harming them, What's good for property owners doesn't necessarily have to be bad for tenants. A good functioning housing market uh, actually means a production of housing, actually means rents that are reasonable, but, but not extreme. And when I say not extreme, it means, well, yes, without rent control, there might be some people's rents that go up, 
but the assumption wouldn't be that all rents would go up to the point no one could afford to live there. That's not how rational free markets work. The market would actually correct itself over time. Right. So uh, this idea that we can explain to them and work with them over time, I think, I think the industry can go a long way towards educating the lawmakers and showing them that there is a path and, and electing, frankly, people who, who have a backbone. I think the mayor, for, for all the recent criticism he's taken um, from certain segments of the political sphere, his popularity remains relatively high. And yes, it's, he's got a lot of things to work on and correct, but I think it's because he has stood up to more, some of the more radical elements of his own party, and he's respected for that, um, even if the general population doesn't always agree with him on every position. I think he has staked a flag for a lot of other elected officials to show them, look, I can stand up to this kind of chattering class in this political sphere and still get, uh, still be popular, still win elections. And it's not, um, it's not going to cost me my seat. So, and I think we saw that in this end of this uh, legislative session, actually. Um, some of the more ridiculous housing proposals did not pass the legislature there was a group of more moderate lawmakers who did hold the line on some of those proposals because they said, frankly, we're tired of being asked to vote for bills we don't believe in. Um, and I think more and more people who realize that they can do that without the um, threats that they constantly get from the tenant advocate community, I think we can show them that, look, there is a way to, again, vote for pro-business, pro-housing policies that won't harm tenants, that will provide more housing at affordable prices, and allow for everyone to have a piece of the pie. Now, it, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, that these are human beings and you should be able to convince them that policies that don't harm tenants shouldn't be something that's poison. And I know that you've championed for a long time the vacancy reset bill. And um, it, it really was newsworthy towards the, the end of this legislative section, uh, session um, and kind of got lumped in with some of the other uh, big housing measures that uh, just may have become too overbearing for the governor and, and the legislature to, to make a deal on. Could you talk about the vacancy reset bill, some of the details um, and wh where we go from here? Yeah, now look, so for the first time, I mean, the good news is that for the first time, the legislature admitted, frankly, across the board, um, both houses in their final compact proposal that they did not end up voting on admitted that there is a huge problem in rent-stabilized housing with vacancies. They did so by saying that they were willing to increase the IAI amount and that they were willing to set aside a massive fund of pro public money for owners to draw down on. Now, those obviously weren't the solutions I'll get to in, in our bill, um, but it's a start. And I think it's the first real admission since 2019 that the law went too far in HSTPA for very specific reasons, and specifically in this case, the IAI uh, decrease, which capped the individual apartment improvements at $15,000. So um, it, again, it's a start. Our bill, which came together over uh, uh, dozens and dozens of conversations with uh, Senator Comrie and Assemblyman Burgos, who were very grateful for, who were attacked mercilessly um, by the tenant advocate community just for carrying those bills for us. And by the way, I heard from, from landlords who were not terribly pleased with all those bills because they were very onerous. But we uh, negotiated those bills, 
to get to the point of actually solving the problem. And so basically what those bills would do is if an, a vacancy uh, became available in a, in a building and it had been occupied for 10 years or more, a property owner would be able to set a new rent that would be comparable to area rent stabilized rents that currently exist. And comparables would be comparable to um, within one square mile of that, that residency. So if you're in um, upper Manhattan, it would be comparable to area rent stabilized rents that are or had already uh, been elevated. So what we frequently see in our, in our um, rent stabilized housing stock are apartments that are basically 1983 rents. There's six, $700 on apartments in one or two bedroom buildings. And they haven't increased with the rate of inflation because of the rent guidelines board increases. And you've had the same tenant in there for 30 or 40 years. And, and two things happen. No, no one wants to rent an apartment that hasn't been renovated in 40 years. Of course. And, a property, and a property owner can't afford to renovate an apartment that is only going to compensate them for a potential $15,000, which only works out to 83 or $89 per month. Temporarily. Temporarily, and then it falls off. So two things are happening. It devalues the building itself because it's a temporary increase in the rent, which falls off. And the so there's no value capture there for the property owner. And there's no incentive to renovate the unit. You actually save money by locking the door. It's just bad housing policy. It's short-sighted. It's nonsense. And, uh, you know, again, th there is progress. I think we've started the conversation. We, we dedicated ourselves to making this uh, a very important issue for the legislature this session. Their acknowledgement, I think, of the problem is a start. We've got several sponsors on the bill. It'll be reintroduced this session. We're committed to getting more sponsors. And we're not going to stop, frankly, until we get this part of the law rolled back. Okay. I mean, you know, like you said, it, it just makes so much sense that when an apartment becomes vacant, and a tenant is willing to pay a new rent, the rent should be reset and this tenant is not being, you know, charged. There's no overcharge. There shouldn't be anything that that's unfair here. And correct me if I'm wrong, even the tenant utopia of San Francisco or any any jurisdiction throughout the country, that all, all the regulated municipalities all have vacancy resets, more or New less. York is the, New York is absolutely unique in the country in that it is the only even California, correct. Even San Francisco, even even the most leftist of leftist areas, have never been so naive and to think that they could regulate vacancies. Yeah. Um, for this very reason, I mean, there is there is a mountain of documentation that shows that this has a very detrimental effect to the well-being of housing, all housing, let alone housing that's on average eighty to one hundred years old that has the average tenancy of fifteen to twenty years minimum. Um, so you need constant um, investment. And, and I will tell you, frankly, it was unfortunate talking to lawmakers who didn't even know the lead law requirements on turnover, that you're looking at apartments that were once under the new lead, under the old lead law requirements at 0.1 and now 0.05. So uh, what, what was shot with an XRF test before and deemed lead safe is now no longer lead safe from the last tenant because they occupied it 30 years ago. Right. They, they, don't, they don't understand how local law 97 works. They don't understand the energy efficiency requirements that are gonna be coming down on rent stabilized owners. So the city council isn't talking to the state legislature. When they pass bills, there's no interaction with the state laws. All of this is part of the, uh, 
monkey's paw that we have to un unwind um, in getting the legislature to to uh, recognize the huge costs in running this housing. Yeah, I mean, you know, rent regulation has, you know, the, the banks were too big to fail, but th this seems to be too big to even succeed one iota. Um, right. You know, I, I guess, you know, it makes no sense to, va to, to regulate vacancies, but you know, if, if I could play the devil's advocate for a minute, you know, the, the tenant advocates will surely yell and scream by saying this will encourage tenant harassment, buyouts, more evictions in order to secure these vacancies in order to get that reset. Um, how would you respond to those tenant advocates? Well, uh, I will. I can say how I responded in the meetings with Ellen Davidson and the legal aid attorneys who wrote HSTPA. Um, and, and first of all, I would argue, I don't believe a buyout is harassment. Um, in, in many cases, when a tenant willingly accepts a huge sums of money to vacate an apartment, I don't think that's harassment. But let's say it is. Let's say for the sake of argument, that's harassment. Let's say uh, doing construction in a building you own is also harassment. Um, we put in protections in the bill language that we worked on, and still they had problems. So we said, um, if there has been an eviction, then DHGR would have to sign off on the rent increase. We said, if there were violations in the apartment, then DHGR would have to sign on the rent increase. So then we eliminated all those arguments for the tenant advocates to say it was harassment caused by the vacancy. Then we also said, by the way, the vacancies we're talking about since, since 2020 because of COVID are not caused by evictions. They couldn't be caused by evictions because housing court had been closed for almost two years. Correct. So what was happening? Are you telling me these people were harassed and evicted out unfairly? They were unfair evictions because there was no housing court to evict these people in. Um, and then we also put in a component to say that the tenant could self-attest that they chose to leave the apartment because we know as people who run housing that people leave housing all the time for a number of reasons. I spoke to an owner this morning who had a tenant of 40 years who just turned the keys in. They were moving to the Dominican Republic because they wanted to be with their family. They were essentially retiring. And in the world of the, of the tenant advocates slash uh, certain lawmaker, they don't believe a, a tenant ever willingly gives up a rent-stabilized apartment. But in reality, that happens all the time in a million units across the city. And what happens with those apartments when they become vacant? They have to be renovated. There's a significant cost to getting those units ready for the next time. So we put in all those protections and still many lawmakers and specifically the housing chairs said we have a problem because it'll raise rents on these affordable housing units and our response to that was these are not affordable housing units they're not available for rent they will not be available for rent until they can be renovated at a true cost and rented out at what they are now true costs our line was and i repeat it often is you cannot run 2013 housing for 1983 rents and we're going to repeat that line over and over until they understand this is private housing. It is not subsidized. There is no tax credit for this. So to pay for this housing, to keep running, to be renovated, to be litigated, it has to be a rent that is comparable to what it costs to operate this housing. Basic economics. Basic Bottom economics. Line. Um, Jay, I'd like to turn to what's been going on and what hasn't been going on, um, both in Albany and in the city. Over the last couple of weeks, you know, it's been quite a quite a busy last few weeks between the disastrous um, Regina repealer bills that uh, were finalized just a couple of days ago, um, emerging out of Albany. What hasn't made it out of Albany, including your uh, good cause eviction 421A, thankfully good cause, um, and 
Of course, last night's rent guidelines board hearing. Could you discuss, including the Regina repealer bills, you know, primarily, yeah. um, you know, what, what do you think could have a significant impact on a housing market and how we got to this point? Because, you know, it really seems like the this is HSTPA all over again, um, as if Regina never happened. And how, how did this happen? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a reason why whenever I'm on a podcast or whatever, I'm asked to speak to a broker group or anything. They ask me to keep it light, to not be so negative. And, and I'm I'm always not doing that because I, I, I don't think my job is to sugarcoat it. Yeah. And what happened in 2019 and what happened last night and what's been happening since 2019 started years ago. It started decades ago. The seeds of what has been happening has been slowly eroding for a very long time. Um, and it's no one in particular's fault, but it has been a slow moving iceberg for this industry. And there is socioeconomic issues at play. There's rising housing costs. Yes, there's the production of housing that hasn't kept up with the amount of renters coming in. There's the increased property tax burden, which no one had been paying attention to because most property owners were making a healthy income. So the property tax burden was, was deal. You could deal with it. But now we're at a point where the rental income isn't covering the massive increases that keep happening. Now the property tax system, there's there's attention being paid to how ridiculous this bifurcated system of different classes and how much renters are actually paying out of their rent stabilized property tax check every every month. So I think what had happened is, frankly, the industry had been complacent in 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 their ability to control when there was a Republican Senate um, and a and Governor Pataki and a Republican governor. And again, it's no one person's fault or one uh, organization's fault. But over time, this kind of growing frustration with the lack of production of housing and the lack of affordability grew and grew and it, it, it uh, grew into this growing socialist kind of leftist movement in Brooklyn and in Queens. And the, the two kind of met up together at a really interesting political time post Donald Trump. People were a little bit more engaged in politics um, regionally. Turnout was very high in the 2018 election um, and massive, uh, massive shift happened to regionally and locally here in New York and in New York State. And I think those confluences of things, the changing dynamics in Albany and the city council um, have put the industry in a position where I don't think it's been um, maybe ever. And I think what, what needs to happen is a, a real recognition that we are not the masters of the universe. We have to do this the way the other side is doing it. From a ground level, we have to speak to our tenants. Our tenants are the most valuable resource we have. They have to understand that they are in this together with us. Um, our financial well-being, when taxes go up, is impacted by their rent check. Uh, when our costs go up, their costs go up. Um, that law, that lawmakers are not their allies. Um, we are their allies. Uh, lawmakers are pushing costs down on them as much as they are pushing them on us. And I think with time, we can show both our tenants and the lawmakers that we are simply trying to run a business. Um, that business doesn't have to be at odds with the mission of providing safe, affordable housing. The lawmakers are the ones choosing to use it to exploit us for that affordable housing product. Um, with time, I think we can change that dynamic. 
to your point about the Regina bills, and I'm sorry, I went on a little bit longer there. I don't know how much time we have uh, to address this, but the Regina bills are, I think, an example of that. Basically, what happened was the legislature beat back good cause to some degree, and they beat back the house, larger housing compact. And the leadership came to many members that we were talking to and basically said, we got to do something on housing. And they want us to pass these bills, the legal aid community. Let's give them something. Why can't we vote for these? And we immediately engaged, we had actually engaged a few weeks before they started moving, telling them the illegality of these bills, the rollback of the Regina retroactively, the fact that they redefined fraud on property owners, that this is a windfall for certain law firms who we believe, frankly, drafted the legislation and handed it to lawmakers to, to push forward. And uh, we're hopeful, actually, we've engaged in robust conversations with the governor's council for a veto. If that doesn't happen, I think, you know, the, these particular bills are vulnerable to legal challenge in, in court and in, in, as applied cases. So um, that, along with the RGB, the, the industry needs to kind of reset and realize that uh, we have to do this from the ground up. There's going to be no easy way to do this, but it starts by individually taking back every one of these socialist seats, I think, with moderate lawmakers that can win back these seats, build groundswell, groundswells of support in these communities, get election turnouts high. There's only about 10% of the electorate voting in each one of these districts. And that's who's deciding who these socialists are. So that's a start. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> and that's a start, 10 to 15%. So that's a start. And uh, I got a lot of other ideas, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll go on to the next question. Then. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, if you could just briefly talk about the suit, you know, the lawsuit, um... HS yeah, rent stabilization that's been ongoing for a couple of years now? Yeah, yeah. So that lawsuit was actually in the works before HSTPA. So HSTPA, we actually had to redraft it. And it's very simple. It's, it's that the, the current rent stabilization system, as typified by the vote from the Red Guidelines Board last night, is a takings. It is the government asking for an affordable housing product provided by private property owners without due compensation. Um, and that is the whole 120-page argument boiled down to one soundbite. And essentially, the argument is laid out to show that consistently, time over time, the property owners of this city have been asked to provide a product. They have not been compensated fairly for the product that they're being asked to provide. And the system forces themselves, and in some cases, even renters, to pay higher amounts to cover for other renters, in this case, for to have less to have the affordability that is provided by rent stabilization. And it wasn't always like this. Rent stabilization was put in place simply as a price cap. Um, Post-World War II, once people, soldiers were moving in and there wasn't enough housing being built. And it became a de facto affordability program. And because of that, there was no system put in place to compensate property owners fairly. There was no system put in place when costs started increasing over time to really balance out the high expenses with other renters. And so what you see is uh, rent stabilized buildings. You'll see rents where somebody's paying $3,000 and someone's paying $600. That makes no logical sense. And there's no means testing. So you can have people who are making right. several hundred thousand dollars who have second homes in the Hamptons, and this happens. One of my neighbors, frankly, has a house upstate and they use their rent stabilized apartment as storage where they go up and they keep their house upstate. And by the way, with these Regina bills that were just passed, they'll be able to designate this house as a second residence. And if 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 found that true, they can keep this rent stabilized unit. They won't. That's not even grounds. For, Any generations. 
correct. So it's it's just nonsense when we're dealing if the if if it's true that we are really seriously and I believe we are dealing with a housing shortage, then why are we giving this precious housing resource to anyone, regardless of their financial means? Why are we setting rents regardless of the financial ability to pay of the person in it? And then why are we creating laws that allow some people to use it as a second home or a storage unit? or whatever they want to use it for when the, we, we have, you know, as the tenant advocates like to point out, tens of thousands of people living in homeless shelters. It doesn't make any logical sense. The system doesn't work for tenants. It definitely doesn't work for property owners. And we're hopeful our lawsuit uh, and the court will see that. We don't expect the court to say New York City and New York State has no right to define rent control because obviously the, the, the Constitution and the way that the laws work clearly provide the government an ability to regulate rent prices, but it, the, the, fifth, the, the Fifth Amendment clearly says that it cannot be done without proper compensation to the property owners, and we intend to prove that in court. Okay, and I, I believe the status is that you filed a petition for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, we're, we're all rooting for you in the industry here. Um, yeah, and look, and, and I will say this, uh, I, I'm very hopeful for our case to get cert. There are other cases. If our case doesn't, which I, I am very hopeful for, another case will. It has become clear that this system has been pushed. These Regina laws are just more of the same. This, this, this system has been pushed by lawmakers and exploited and abused to the point where I don't think the court can ignore it much longer. And, and Jay, you know, we, we could talk about this, you know, I, I know for days at a time and I'm, I'm hoping we could do another episode. But um, I, I just, you know, before we before we end looking ahead, what are your hopes for the future of housing in New York? And I guess what steps do you believe should be taken to create a more realistic and sustainable housing market for all? Because the status quo is just unsustainable you know, by any measure. I think everyone would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of what I've spoken about already, but I think, look, I think if we can get um, if we can get some a little bit more consensus between a few key lawmakers, and I think we're getting there, uh, I think more advocacy from our community, regular property owners, regular uh, brokers, uh, those from legal counsel as well, talking to their lawmakers, explaining to them the real world situations that are happening. Um, most lawmakers are actually kind of receptive to that information, I find. Uh, I've been on the, on the legislative side and now on the lobbying side. Um, we have this assumption that they don't, they don't really listen. And some don't, but most do. And I think if we continue to show them those real-world stories and be the squeaky wheel, we'll get the oil eventually, I think. And, and I think that with time, that's going to happen. Um, I think we've been able to show that with the vacancy issue. Um, it was something that they were not willing to address at all just a year ago. And we've done things like made TikTok videos. I can't even tell you how TikTok works, but we've been doing TikTok videos and we've been doing, and I tweet regularly about it and Instagram, and they, we've got it to a place where they cannot ignore it. And that's step one. And step two is a solution that works for property owners. So um, it's just a matter of getting in their face and not letting them ignore our problems. Okay. Well, Jay, I, I thank you very much for coming on this episode. Um, extremely informative, and, and I'm, I'm sure this will be one of the more popular ones. 
Um, again, thank you, Jay, and uh, hope to be in touch soon. My pleasure. Thank you.